0: You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday school for all ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, good morning once again. Y'all all right this morning? My microphone is working. It was operator error somebody left it on mute. I never put that thing on mute. I let the people who were doing this, so it was my fault. I didn't check it, so that was the first thing that went wrong, and then that thing went out, but you know, we should not ask, well, what will happen next? So we won't, we won't ask that. Why don't you join me in your Bibles in Ruth chapter 1. So we will be in the book of Ruth for the next four weeks, so Ruth is, of course, in the Old Testament. You can find it between the Old Testament books of Judges and First Samuel. This is one of the, the greatest books in the Bible. Well, they're all great. We really shouldn't say that, right? But you know, a lot of people have said, or it has been said on more than one occasion that Ruth is the greatest short story ever written. And I believe there's probably some truth to that. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. It's a story that we find in God's word. And it is really a wonderful, wonderful short story. So we're gonna be here for the next four weeks. There are four chapters in the book of Ruth. And each chapter represents kind of an act, if you will. There's like four acts in this drama. So we'll be here for the next four weeks. While you're finding your way there to Ruth chapter 1, I want to share with you a story. So when I was a young boy, I had a friend by the name of Jay. He was a couple of years older than me. And when Jay was in ninth or 10th grade, I believe it was, he suffered a really tragic situation and loss in his life. He lost his father at a very young age. His father, I I think, was in his mid-forties when he died. certainly no older than that. Tragic situation, left behind a wife and two young sons. And and I'm certainly not gonna minimize uh, Jay's pain. I know it was a very difficult situation for him. But as you might imagine, that had a profound impact on Jay and a profound impact on the way that Jay viewed the world and the way that Jay viewed God. Shortly after the loss of his father, Jay descended into what could only be described as this descent of despair and and hopelessness that then turned into anger and bitterness. He became a very angry young man. He was angry at the world, that then led to anger directed at God. He reached a place where he decided that God was the source of his pain and his suffering, and he decided that he wanted nothing to do. With God. Really a, a sad tale to sit and watch. And I, I don't know where Jay is today spiritually. We we haven't talked in years. I, I don't know where he is today. But the, I pray that that he's grown out of that and, and, and sought God again later in his life. But there's a reason why I share that story with you this morning. It's because the story of Ruth opens with a very similar situation in the life of a woman named Naomi. Even though this book that we are about to journey through is named after Ruth, you should know that Ruth is not the main character of this story. The main character, the central figure in this story is, in fact, Naomi. The entire story is going to trace God's redemptive work on her behalf after she suffers a series of tragedies, difficult situation for her. Like my friend Jay, we will discover today Naomi descends into bitterness and despair, the result of which is anger directed towards God. And she eventually reaches a place where she blames God for all that has happened to her, and she wants nothing to do with God. So I think as Christians, there is much for us to learn from Naomi's story. Naomi is going to teach us that no matter how dark, well, first of all, she's going to teach us the dangers that are inherent as God's people, of slipping into hopelessness and despair and bitterness and anger. There's, there's inherent danger involved with that. But, but secondly, Naomi's story is going to teach us that no matter, no matter how dark and no matter how difficult the days may become, as a child of God, as children of God, there is always hope. You could say amen to that. right, Naomi's story above and beyond anything else is going to teach us that. So with that out of the way, a very brief introduction to the book of Ruth. Today, we're going to be in in Ruth chapter 1, all the way down to the conclusion of the chapter. It's some 22 verses. So if you have a copy of God's word, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. And the words should be up here on this screen right here. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people, And they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would, would you therefore wait till they were grown?" Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We got an extra amen right over there. Father, thank you so much for your holy and your precious word. Thank you for the great privilege and opportunity that I have to stand here and to proclaim it each and every week to your people. Pray, God, that you would allow me to rightly divide it here today and apply it to our lives And I pray that we would all be strengthened and encouraged through the preaching of your word and as we look at this story of Naomi and the story of her redemption. We pray all of these things in Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned just a few moments ago, we are going to see tragedy strike in the life of naomi but before we actually get to the tragedy the narrator of this book is going to do a little bit of of foreshadowing for us in the first two verses of chapter one i'm not going to read those verses again but they should be up here on the screen and these first two verses of chapter one they're very foreboding and they're like storm clouds on the horizon they're preparing the reader for the storm that is coming when when they read these two verses they know oh there's dark clouds there's a storm gathering on the horizon so dark cloud number one is the mention of the time of the judges so we learn here in verse one that the events of this book occurred during the time of the judges this was a very dark period in the history of the nation of Israel. It was a time of perpetual war. Someone, you know, History doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme, right? It was a time of perpetual war for the nation of Israel. It was also a time of apostasy over and over again, and it was a time of judgment. Judges chapter 17, verse 6 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did which was right, In his own eyes. That phrase is repeated at least seven times throughout the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that phrase demonstrates how the people of Israel had abandoned Yahweh, who was supposed to be their true king. Uh, My understanding of the Old Testament is this When, when God entered into a covenant with the people, the nation of Israel, he never intended for them to have an earthly king, he was to be their king. Yahweh was to be their king. They were to be a true theocracy. And just by way of reminder, whenever we see Yahweh in the Old Testament, you need to automatically think about Jesus. And so uh, God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel. He said, I'm going to be your king. They were to submit to his kingship, his rule. They were to be faithful to his covenant. But during the time of the judges, they were anything but. They did not submit to his kingly rule and they were not faithful To his covenant. And that's one reason why, why it was such a dark period in the nation of Israel. This may very well explain their apostasy and their unfaithful to his covenant, unfaithfulness to his covenant. This may very well explain the second dark cloud that we read here. And that is the mention of the famine in the land. This is a phrase that is also repeated quite often in the old testament and whenever you read it that that usually lets you know that something worse is coming now according to leviticus 26 and deuteronomy 28 yahweh had promised to send famines upon israel if they were unfaithful to his covenant. You can read that again in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28. Here's something else we should remember. When, when God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel, he made them a series of promises. He said, all right, here's the deal. I promise to bless you. If, if you are faithful to my covenant, here's a list of promises of blessings that, that I promise to give to you. But if you are unfaithful to my covenant, here's another list of promises, A of promises a list of curses. And famine was one of those curses. And it would seem entirely possible. We don't know for sure, but it's possible that this famine that we read about here during the time of the judges was a part of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. And indeed, this is bolstered by the fact that the famine is apparently restricted to Israel because Elimelech picks up his family and he moves from Bethlehem, which, oh, by the way, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And so there's no bread in the house of bread in Bethlehem, but apparently there is bread in Moab. And Moab is not all that far away from Bethlehem. It's just across the Jordan River, modern-day Jordan. And so this famine that we read about here, it's restricted, apparently, to the land of Israel. And so that's further evidence, at least it's possible, that this famine is a result of God's judgment. And then there's dark cloud number three, and that is the mention of, of Moab. The people of Moab are the descendants of Lot's children that he fathered with his oldest daughter. And you can go read that sordid affair in Genesis 19 if you want to. But these people are pagan enemies of the nation of Israel, and they do not follow Yahweh. So again, all of these details are simply foreboding, and they serve like dark clouds On the horizon. The reader reads these two verses and they're they're in tune. They're like, oh, there's a storm coming. And the storm now hits in the following verses, verses three through five. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So now Naomi is a widow and in a foreign country. And no offense to you ladies, but but in that day and time in that culture, a lady would have, a woman would have no way of providing for herself without a husband, uh, unless she had a son or two, which we know that she does. But then we read about them. Well, what happens to the two sons? Verse four, well, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died. And so now she's without a husband and her two sons, and she's living in a foreign country so now here, here is a lady, a woman who has no way to provide for herself or, or protection, no source of provision or protection. Then we read at the end of verse 5, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I want you to notice very importantly there at the end of verse 5, if you like to mark your Bibles, I want you to notice how Naomi is referred to simply as the woman. Do you see that there? The woman. And this is a very intentional narrative device on part of the author that is intended to paint a very grim picture of loss. Naomi has lost everything at this point in the story. She's lost her home country. She's from Bethlehem. She's from Israel. She's lost her original family. Now she's in a foreign country, a pagan country. She's lost all of that. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's lost her every source of provision and protection. And now, seemingly, on a narrative level at least, she has even lost her name. The author of Ruth wants his readers to pause and to reflect and to ask at this very moment, can Naomi ever recover from such tragedy? Will this woman ever be blessed again? And, and I know what this is like. Because I've told you all before that there was a time in my life, specifically going back to 2004, where where I asked the same questions of my life. Will I ever be blessed? Can my life ever turn around from this? In 2004, I've shared this with you before, I lost my stepfather, my father, and my mother. All three of them died in that year and in that order. At the beginning of 2004, Uh, I kind of knew that my mother probably would not live to see 2005. She had been battling cancer for about two years, and that battle was coming to an end. But I had no idea that I was also going to lose my stepfather and my father. My stepfather died in April after one month of being diagnosed with stomach cancer. One moment, he's healthy and happy. The next moment, he's gone same thing happened with my father in august of 2004 i actually spent a week of vacation at my father's house in Asheville, north carolina at the end of that stay he started feeling ill and sick and i went on home and he went to the doctor and he found out that he had i believe it was a very rare and aggressive form of leukemia and like my stepfather he was dead within a month and then finally in november of 2004 my mother finally died after her two-year battle or so with cancer. Making matters worse for me in 2004 is the fact that I wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ. I was far from it. And, and, and even more than that, my life was already down in the dumps. I had absolutely nothing in 2004. I had no hope in this world. I didn't have two nickels to rub together. And so to, and that's a true statement And to look at my life in 2004 is to ask the very same questions here. Well, can he ever recover from this? Will his life ever turn around? Will he ever be blessed? And maybe there are some who have come here this morning, and maybe you're asking similar questions about your life. Can I recover from this? Whatever this is, will God ever? bless me again can my life turn around can my fortunes be restored and and at the risk of sounding like a prosperity preacher and i'm never going to be one of those but at the risk of sounding like one of those my answer to you is resounding yes absolutely i stand before you today as living proof that god can do far more abundantly than we can ever ask or imagine and naomi's story is going to prove this too By the end of this story, her fortunes will be restored. She will be redeemed, as the story puts it. She will be blessed beyond anything that she could ever ask or imagine in this moment. But before she gets there, she's going to descend into this pit of bitterness and despair. We pick up in verse 6, and there the Bible says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. After a series of a really dark, series of dark information and dark clouds, we finally get a ray of sunshine and a ray of hope right here in verse 6. Naomi hears that Yahweh has visited his people, God has ended the famine, he's restored the fortunes of his people. Happy days are here again. This should give Naomi hope that God can do the same for her. But this is not how she interprets these events as Naomi sets out for Israel. We read in the following verses that her two uh, daughters-in-law, they go with her, but she pleads with them on three separate occasions, no, don't come with me. Return to your own families. We pick up the story in verse 11, drop all the way down to verse 11. And Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? In other words, don't attach yourself to me. (laughs) I'm a losing situation. There's no hope for me or with me, so you should go somewhere else. Don't attach yourself to me. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope... Even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Of course you wouldn't, it's a rhetorical question. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, here's, here's how I interpret what Naomi is doing here. I think Naomi has surveyed the situation the famine that drove her away from Bethlehem, the death of her husband, the deaths of her two sons. She, she's, she's heard that of the restoration of Israel, that, that God has visited his people, but God hasn't visited me, right, she says. Naomi says she takes inventory of all of that as if she's writing it down, as if she's keeping a record of all of the pain and suffering that has come into her life, and she reaches one unmistakable conclusion, and that is this. The hand of Yahweh is against me. That's literally what she says. The words come right off of her lips. Yahweh's hand or the hand of Yahweh is against me. She is convinced in this moment that God is out to get her. I knew a preacher once. He was actually my very first mentor in pastoral ministry. He was the pastor of the church where I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who pushed me in the pulpit for the very first time and said, God is calling you to preach. And I said, no, I'm not. And here I am. God bless him, Pastor Steve. And Pastor Steve would call this kind of thinking stinking thinking. Isn't that right, dear? That's exactly what he would call it. Naomi is engaging in stinking thinking. She's allowing her tragic circumstances to affect the way that she thinks about God. She is convinced that God is out to get her personally and that God is punishing her personally. Now, it is true I said a few moments ago, the famine in Israel that led to all of this, that may very well have been a result of God's judgment. The text doesn't say, but it certainly is very possible. But even if that is so, that was God's judgment upon the nation of Israel and not Naomi personally. And there is a difference between the two, and I'll try to make that distinction in just a moment. But before I do that, here's a principle that that I want everyone in this room to remember. When tragedy strikes and tragedy will strike... None of us are going to get out of this world without experiencing some sort of tragic event in this life. It's not going to happen. So it's going to happen. When tragedy strikes, as a child of God, do not assume the worst about God. Do not assume that. Don't assume that God is out to get you. We must always remember that we live in a fallen and a broken world. You may get tired of me saying that, but I have to say it over and over and over again because if there's one thing I've learned as a pastor is that we don't always make that connection. When the rubber meets the road, we don't all, that's not our default view. right? We have to remember this. This world in which we live, that we are sojourners, it is a fallen and a broken world. And because of that, so long as we live here, we will endure tragedy, we will endure loss, But we cannot and we must not blame that on God. Because we are the ones who have turned this world upside down. We are the ones who have corrupted God's good creation. And now we live with the results of that corruption. Death, disease, famine, war. And yes, on one level, like Naomi, on one level, these things are a result of God's judgment on the world. Because the judgment of Genesis chapter 3, when mankind fell into sin. So in one sense, that is part of God's judgment upon the world, right? So we we live in a world that has been judged by God and that has fallen and is broken. That is the bad news. But there is good news. And as I, I like to say, you cannot have good news if at first you do not have bad news. And the good news is that God is a God of grace and a God of mercy who offers redemption from this fallen world. In fact, the whole story of the Bible, church, tells of how God redeems those who have been victimized by the tragic realities of this fallen world. The Bible is one story. I want you to get that. When I was a young pastor... well. A new pastor, let's put it that way, because I wasn't exactly young in age. But in my first pastorate, it had a Wednesday night Bible study. I don't know, there was probably 30 people in the room, and I asked the question, is the Bible 66 different books, or is the Bible one book with one story? And almost to a T, every single person in the room said, yeah, preacher, it's 66 books. No, it's not. The Bible is one book. And it is one story. There is one grand story that is going from the beginning all the way to the end. I I really like the way that our children's Sunday school curriculum has our children remember this grand narrative of Scripture. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, consummation. It's a really easy way to teach children. In fact, one of my children, who will remain nameless... Came home a few weeks ago and was all excited because they had learned the seven C's of history. And they he reeled off his tongue. All right, well you know it's one of two, right? Creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and constipation. it's really close. It's really cro- close. But it really is a really good description of the grand narrative of Scripture, creation. God creates this perfect world where everything is as God intends it to be. Man and God live in harmony. Man and man. Man and woman live in harmony. Man and creation. There's, there's no death. There's no disease. There's no war. There, there's no famine. It's, it's as God intends it to be. But then there's the corruption of Genesis chapter 3. Mankind falls into sin. The world then is is cursed. The world is then turned upside down. It's been corrupted. Then there's the catastrophe of Noah's flood. That was a catastrophe of God's judgment upon this fallen and this broken world. But in God's judgment, God's judgment meets His grace because God saved and redeemed one family out of the world, and he saved them for a purpose so that ultimately he would save and redeem the human race and this fallen rock that we call home. Then there's confusion, Genesis chapter 11. This is a very important chapter in your Bible. You should understand it. The the earth is repopulated again, but the people are rebelling against God again, and they're they're gathered together in one place, and they're all speaking the same language, and God says, no, it's not going to happen. I'm going to disperse you people throughout the earth. You're going to become the nations of the earth, and I'm going to give you different languages and different tongues. And then, of course, we come to Christ and the cross, and... Christ came and He died on the cross specifically to redeem the nations of the earth. The Bible tells us that at the end of human history in the new heavens in the new earth that all nations will be represented there, that all tribes and all tongues will be there. And then, of course, there's the last sea, and it's consummation. Consummation. When Jesus Christ returns a second time for His redeemed, His bride, the church... And he would make all things new again. But church, I want you to see that the whole story of Naomi, from beginning to end, is a microcosm of this grand narrative of Scripture. At the beginning of the story, Naomi is indeed a victim of this fallen and cursed world. But by the end of the story, she will be fully redeemed. And you need to understand that Naomi's story is your story. I want you to get that. Naomi's story is your story. You may be a victim of this fallen world today. If not today, it will come. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will one day be fully redeemed. And you need to hold on to that promise. And you need to believe in that promise, specifically in difficult times. As we pick up the story, Orpah has turned back to Moab. She's taken Naomi's advice and she's gone back. But we see Ruth is clinging to Naomi. In verse 15, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, think about what she's doing here. She she urges Ruth to go back to her gods. <laughs> Ruth is from Moab. The only gods in Moab are lifeless idols made of wood, and and made of stone. Naomi is saying, you'll be better off with your lifeless gods than with Yahweh, the one true God. And so because of this, Naomi seems to be someone who has lost all faith and all trust in God. And this is where stinking thinking will lead you if you're not careful. So that's why we should avoid stinking thinking, and we should avoid thoughts of God, but Ruth now in verses 16 and 17, she speaks for the first time. And and here in these verses, these are very key verses to the entire book, and this is probably why Ruth's name is on the the cover of the book, if you will. She says, verse 16, do not urge me to leave you, or, or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, that is Yahweh, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So what I want you to understand from these two verses, is this is Ruth's declaration of loyal love. What do I mean by that? She is actually demonstrating the meaning of the Hebrew word chesed. I mentioned chesed. When I went through the Psalms earlier in the summer, it's a wonderful Hebrew word. It's one of my favorite words. And like most Hebrew words, there's not one English word that can fully describe what this Hebrew word means. Hesed can mean things like loyal love. It can mean kindness. It can mean devotion. It can mean commitment. It is most often used in reference to God. God is a God of Hesed, but sometimes it is used of people. Now, the word Hesed actually appeared earlier in the story in verse 8. I did not read from verse 8 earlier, but I'm going to read from it now. In verse 8, Naomi prays that God would show Hesed to Ruth in Orpah. It is translated as kindness in verse 8. There the Bible says, and this is Naomi praying for Ruth. May the Lord deal kindly. May Yahweh has said you. That's what she says. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, as you have demonstrated has said, with my two sons and with me. So I'm going somewhere with this. Now in verses 16 and 17, what does Ruth do? Ruth proves that she is indeed a person of loyal love. She now proves her has said, and her loyalty to Naomi. She declares that nothing will separate her from, from Naomi, nothing. She declares that she is there for Naomi in her time of need. She declares her willingness to sacrifice everything that she has and everything that she knows for Naomi. The only thing that will ever separate her from Naomi is, is death. And this is why the book bears the name Ruth, because Ruth's said is a picture of God's chesed for his people, When God came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ, you know the story, but I'm going to remind you of it anyway. He gave up everything. He gave up the glory and the perfection of heaven, that beautiful country called heaven, where everything is as it's supposed to be. And he got up off of his throne and he took on human flesh and he gave all of that up to come to this earth. And he came to us, humanity, in our time of need in our time of hopelessness, in our time of despair, when there was no other way of salvation, Jesus Christ came to make a way by sacrificing Himself on the cross of Calvary where He died there as a sacrifice for your sin, the promise of everlasting life. And oh, by the way, church, the promise of full redemption, of being redeemed from the effects of this fallen and this broken world, and life, eternity, and the new heavens and the new earth where everything will be as God intends it to be. let somebody say amen. amen. That's the good news. That's the reason why we call the story of Jesus the gospel. Gospel means good news. And that is good news, all of that in and of itself. But beloved, the Bible says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Can we separate ourselves from the love of God? Yeah, probably. But God's still going to love us. All who have trusted in Jesus Christ are assured of God's loyal love. Romans 8, 38, Paul says it, you know it, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. You see what he says there? Nothing in this fallen, and this broken world, this is what he says, and he goes on, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So regardless of the tragedies that may come, and, and they will Come, you must always trust and believe that God is a God of loyal love. In Christ Jesus, you have a God who will never forsake you, you have a God who will never leave you. You have a God who has declared His loyalty to you, His has said to you once and for all on the cross of Calvary. And so the next time tragedy strikes in your life, make sure that you look and you fix your eyes on the cross so that you are reminded then and there, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your sorrow, that God is, in fact, a God of love, a God of grace, that he is a God of a said. Look to the cross, and this will change your outlook on life and on God. Naomi's outlook should have changed here with Ruth's declaration of ased. But that's not what happens. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. You would think that she would be delighted, maybe express a little bit of gratitude. Oh, that's so kind of you to come with me. Um, I'm I'm so grateful for you. But she doesn't say a thing. She just buttons her lips and says like, okay, suit yourself if you really want to. And so they travel on to Jerusalem. And then, sorry, Bethlehem. It's close. Then we read in verse 19, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread. Now there's bread in the house of bread. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. You know what, you know what moves faster than the speed of light and the internet? The grapevine. And the grapevine is moving. And people are talking. Ooh, Naomi has come back from Moab. And she's got this woman from Moab with her. So they're talking. They're chatting. That's what they're doing. And the women said, is this this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You need to understand something about these two names here, right? Mara and Naomi. Naomi means lovely and pleasant. That's what the word means. But, of course, as she enters Bethlehem, she desires a new name. She says to the people, don't call me lovely and pleasant. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Mara means bitter. That's what the word means. And, indeed, she is a very bitter person in this moment. She's bitter. She's angry at God. She's angry at the world. She's, She's eaten alive with bitterness. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. If you like to mark your Bibles, mark that sentence right there. We're gonna come back to it in a second. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why in the world would you call me beautiful and pleasant? Can't you see I am not beautiful and pleasant? Can't you see the scowl on my face? Don't call me beautiful and pleasant. I'm not beautiful and pleasant. I'm anything but. I'm bitter. When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon you, Not once, not twice, but three times, church. She accuses God, she blames God as the source of all of her suffering. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me, she says. The Lord, Yahweh, has testified against me. The Lord, Yahweh, has brought me back empty. Think about that last statement there for just a moment. The Lord has brought me back empty. I left this place with a husband and two sons, and now I've come back empty-handed. Is that a true statement? Who is standing right next to her when she says this? Ruth. Who was the one who just declared their loyal and undying love? Who was the one who said, I'm going to be with you no matter what? It's Ruth. And she's standing right there beside her and she says, the Lord has brought me back Well, how could you imagine that this would make Ruth feel? Well, we don't really know because Scripture doesn't say. So we can only imagine. We can only hazard a guess. But I put myself in her shoes, and if anyone is empty in this moment, I think it's Ruth. I mean, she's given up everything for Naomi, and Naomi can't even acknowledge her presence and her loyalty in this moment. And I think there is a principle here for God's people that we need to take away and that we need to learn. And the principle is this, if you have to write it down, write it down. Bitterness blinds people. Bitterness is blinding. And it is a very deadly disease. Bitter people cannot and will not see the good that surrounds them. And this is exactly who Naomi is in this story. And I know she suffered a tragic loss, I get it. And I'm not minimizing her pain and I'm not minimizing your pain, I've I've experienced loss in my own life. I'm not minimizing any of that, but Naomi is very bitter at this moment. All that she sees in this moment are the negatives. But let's look at the positives. God has brought her back to Bethlehem safety. Two women ha- have made the trek from Moab to Bethlehem all by themselves. That's the equivalent of two of you women walking from Providence Baptist Church to downtown Kansas City safely. If you got there, you'd be rejoicing, wouldn't you? If you made it. It's not an easy trip fraught with danger, but, but here they are. They made it. God has brought her back to Bethlehem in a time of harvest. We read about that in verse 22. I'm not going to read it, but it's a time of abundance. It's a time of blessing. Happy days are here again in the nation of Israel. It's a good thing. But most of all, God has brought her back to Bethlehem with a loyal friend. Well, let's face it, church. Loyal and loving friends like, Lou, like Ruth, they're not common, are they? They're really hard to find. The Bible says in Proverbs 18 24, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, or in this case, a sister. Oh, that's very true. I would I would rather have one friend like Ruth than ten million lukewarm friends. What a treasure of gold Naomi has standing right beside her. But she, she can't even see it because she was blinded by her bitterness. It was anger and bitter bitterness that was directed at God. So let me ask you, church, I'm almost done. I got two weeks worth in me this morning. So are you angry? Are you bitter this morning? Did you come here angry or bitter at someone? Or something or some circumstance in your life? Angry or bitter at God? That's your situation this morning. Let me speak to you. My suggestion to you is that you look at the world with a fresh pair of eyes. In just a moment, we're going to sing an old hymn. And the old hymn says this, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Let me say that again. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That is a very true statement. And I'm happy We're going to sing that song in just a moment. So rather than keeping a record of all of the hardships and all of the difficulties, remember I told you before, it was as if Naomi was writing down all of the pain and all of the suffering. She was keeping a record of all that had gone wrong in her life. Rather than keeping a record of all of that, Naomi should have been keeping a record of her blessings and all the good things that God was doing in her life. And so maybe there are some here this morning who are in the same boat. Maybe there are some here who need to count your blessings. If, if that is you, let me just encourage you to sit down on a regular and consistent basis and, and think about and like really meditate on all the good stuff that's going on in your life and all the good things that God is doing for you, all of the blessings that you can count in your life. I don't know if it's daily, weekly, monthly, make it a habit. Sit down and write these things down. And maybe you should just journal in general. Uh, journal about your, your trek as a Christian, if you will, your, your path as a Christian, and, and write down your prayers. You know, when, we, when I first started as a pastor, I would journal on a regular basis, like a daily, weekly basis. I would keep a journal of all that was going on in my life as a pastor, really, primarily. And I did this, I don't know, maybe four or five years. And then, for whatever reason, I stopped doing it. But then when we moved from Kernersville to here and I was unpacking boxes, came across this journal. And I picked it up and I so about a year ago and, and I started thumbing through it and I started reading and, and I was I was amazed to look and to see at how God had richly blessed me over those years. This is good, good medicine for your soul to keep a journal of your 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 path, your I can't say it. I'm missing my words this morning, but your trek as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ, of all of the blessings, all of the good things that God has done for you, write these things down. It's good medicine for the soul because you can go back and you can look when times are difficult and it will surprise you. You will be reminded of just how good the Lord is. He's been good to me, that is for sure. And I know... He is good to you. Ultimately, church, Naomi's problem was her low view of God. It was her low view of God that led her into despair and bitterness. And so with that in mind, I just want to give you three quick takeaways this morning. In times of despair, we must remember three attributes of God very quickly. Number one, God is powerful. No matter how dark the days may be, no matter how deep your hole may be, God has the power to change your life. It's true. Nothing is impossible with God. Secondly, you need to remember that God is compassionate. When tragedy strikes, you need to remember that God is not out to get you. God is not punishing you. God loves you. And God is ultimately for you and not against you. He proved that once and for all on the cross of Calvary. And then third and finally, remember that God is loyal. If you are a believer in Christ, God will never forsake you. Nothing will ever separate you from his love and from his power. And so no matter how difficult life becomes, you can always trust that one day all the sorrows of this life will be forgotten. You won't even remember them when you stand in his eternal presence and eternal glory. This is the great hope that we have as Christians, as followers of Christ, through our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, by the way, church, is the physical descendant, the earthly descendant, of a little boy who we read about at the end of the story in ruth chapter 4 who naomi is holding and the townspeople they say oh look how god has blessed her naomi god has given her a son she's fully redeemed jesus christ is a physical earthly descendant of that child yahweh in human flesh proof once again church that the Bible is one grand story of how God is redeeming mankind through Jesus Christ. All glory and all honor and all power unto him. Jesus, thank you so much that you are a God of grace and you are a God of love. The God who redeems us, the God who proved it, once and for all, on the cross of Calvary. Lord, I pray that, that we would all take the message to heart, that we would, we would remember these things, particularly when life turns dark, and difficult, that we would, we would not think ill of you, but that we would remember who you are, that you are a God of love and a God of grace. I thank you, Lord, and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand church we're going to sing one more hymn and the hymn is going to invite us to count our blessings so as you sing the hymn think about your blessings and think about all the good ways that God has blessed you in your life this is also a time of response maybe there's someone out there who's never trusted in Jesus Christ you need to know that this world has fallen and this broken but there is redemption that's available through faith in Jesus Christ. Personal faith, believing that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin and was raised to life again. Whatever it is that's on your heart, I would encourage you.